Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 34, The Ghosts of 1888, Part 1. Last time I interviewed a bunch of Avenue historians for like four hours. But the time before that, we talked about the 1952 Bible Conference and how the church was trying to put on a united scholarly front. They were, of course, reacting to some challenges that they were facing. I, I mentioned Lewis Weir's teachings in Australia. Today, we are going to just take one half step back, talk about another challenge that motivated church leaders at the 1952 Bible Conference, and our story begins in Africa. But before we get there, I just want to say we are going to have a live Avenue History Podcast Christmas party on December 5th on YouTube, on our, on our Avenue History Podcast channel on YouTube. And this is going to be at 1 o'clock Central Time, Central U.S. Time, on December 5th. And I uh, hope you can be there. We're going to, uh, Jason and I are going to have a conversation about this episode. And we are going to be giving away some things and just do an Avenue History quiz and that you guys can play if you want to be there. So just put that on your calendars. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. December 5th, 1 o'clock Central Time. See you there. Now, back to Africa. A letter came to the makeshift field office in Uganda. It was a scrap of paper, and on it were written the words, Please send us help. Another letter arrived, this time from a boy in a Catholic school. The boy wanted to know more about Adventists and even wanted to become an Adventist priest when he grew up. The missionary in charge of this mission, the president of this territory, was in his early 30s alongside his wife and young child. And this, this was a daunting challenge. But then revival struck. The Balokole movement, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm up on all of my pronunciations, okay? But the Balokole movement swept through Uganda as a reaction to the wealth and the corruption of the Christian elites in the country, okay? This is a place where the Anglican Church was still sending bishops to, to administer the territory from, from England. And so... It was, it was also a reaction to colonialism, this Balokale movement. It was a reaction to this idea that the church leaders are often coming from, from England or other parts. And, you know, are we not Christians here in Uganda? Can we not be bishops and priests and things like that? This was a, also a deeply fundamentalist revival in some respects. I mean, Balokale means the saved ones. And they wanted the church purged of impurities like alcohol, dancing, jewelry, and, of course, they wanted to see more of the native population take on leadership roles. Now, you know, any movement that's against alcohol, dancing, and jewelry, like Avenus, just start dreaming, start swooning, okay? <laughs> and so, even though the, the Balokole movement was winding down by the late 1940s, this Avenus missionary and many other Avenus in the area sympathized with their goals. Older Avenus in the country warned of the dangers that they saw. But the young missionary just thought they were jealous, right? They're just stuck in their ways. 
they can't see this for what it is. It's actually bringing revival to the Adventists who are, who are adopting this movement. They're giving up things they should be giving up. They should have given up a long time ago. And so these Balokole Adventists were, were uh, it seemed like they had the outward fruit of revival. But then this missionary realized that this movement seemed a lot like pre-1888 Adventism, with its emphasis on doing this and not doing that. And what this, what this revival movement needed was the 1888 message of righteousness by faith. So, before long, this missionary and his family were aboard the old hospital ship Landovery Castle on their way to England. They were on a furlough at long last. They had earned it because they were working hard there in Uganda, and they had successfully met this Balokole crisis and, and, and pointed out some of the areas where it was deficient, and they had earned this, this furlough. And it was there when they got to England that by providence it seemed this missionary stumbled upon a book called Glad Tidings, a book written by Ellett J. Wagner, one of the young preachers of that 1888 message way back when. Do you remember when we talked about 1888? It's been a little while. This missionary read the entire book all the way through there in England and, it seems, read it through again on the boat going back to America. This was the beginning of a new movement in Adventism. And that missionary, Robert Julius Wheeland, would stand at its head for the next 60 years. Alongside him would be Donald K. Short, a man Wheeland had known since high school in Florida, who had served near him as a missionary in Eastern Africa, and who returned with him on the Landovery Castle. Wheeland and Short took a furlough from their mission fields and enrolled at the seminary in 1949. Wieland was excited to take a course on righteousness by faith, the, the theological slogan of the 1888 experience. Apparently, this course was not offered all of the time, but it was being offered when they got there, and so Wieland was excited. He was excited to read in that course the 1893 General Conference Bulletin, and he began copying it by hand. Now, that seems like an exceptionally dry thing to do. <laughs> because, you know, we don't think of anything called a bulletin, whether it's a church bulletin or something else, as being worthy of being copied by hand. But you have to understand, these bulletins, and they proliferated as, as time went on, but these bulletins were, were basically like the daily summaries of the business going on at general conference sessions. So he's reading what sermons were preached, what things were voted on, that sort of thing. But it wasn't the things that were being voted on that really interested him. That's, that's not what he is caring about so much. Because it was in that bulletin that Wheeland realized that this whole 1888 thing wasn't just a boring theological controversy in church history. There was a message in there. A.T. Jones preached his heart out at that 1893 General Conference session. He believed that recovering the message of righteousness by faith was more than just a new emphasis on Jesus. It was more than just, hey guys, when we do evangelism, make sure you put Jesus at the center of every topic. No, no, no. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, Jones 
at that 1893 general conference session read from a letter he had received from George Starr, who at that time was serving in Australia with Ellen White. And Jones, who always seemed to enjoy reading mail publicly, <laughs> read from Starr's letter as well. Quote, Sister White says that we have been in the time of the latter reign since the Minneapolis meeting, end quote. Now, the Minneapolis meeting, of course, refers to the General Conference session in Minneapolis in 1888. And the latter reign is a biblical phrase which Adventists interpret as a, as a second Pentecost, a time at the end of time where the Holy Spirit will unmistakably fall on God's people and they will be empowered to go out and finish the work. And after reading the letter, Jones asked, quote, that is just what we have found in our own study of these lessons, is it not? Brethren, how much longer is the Lord going to wait before we will receive it? He has been trying these four years to have us receive the latter rain. How much longer is he going to wait before we receive it? End quote. Now, reading sermons is generally a pretty dry affair. These days, sermons are meant to be proclaimed in person, not read in a book. But this is stirring stuff. You can feel Jones's passion. To Jones, the 1888 message of righteousness by faith was part of this final message to be given to the world. Those who embraced the message were being transformed. They would cry. They would confess. Their whole attitude would change. I mean, we have person after person after person who were, who were hostile to Jones and Wagner at the 1888 meeting, in the years afterwards, they, they would one by one just be knocked down like dominoes. And they would say, man, my heart was so hard, you know, and, and now I found the love of God in my life. One person who was there in 1888, and, and he listened to Ellet J. Wagner speak there, later recounted this, quote, at the close of Elder Wagner's fourth or fifth lesson, I was subdued. I was a subdued, repenting sinner. I felt that I must get away alone with the Lord. I went out of the city, away into the woods. I did not want dinner. I spent the afternoon there on my knees and on my face before the Lord with my Bible. I saw him as my own personal Savior, and there I was converted anew. All doubts that my sins were really forgiven were taken away. And from then till now, I have never doubted my acceptance as a pardoned child of God. End quote. This is the kind of transformation that people were accustomed to experiencing when they, when they got it, when they got this whole righteousness by faith thing. And this was the experience that Jones and Wagner and Ellen White wanted Adventists to have in the wake of that general conference session. And it's easy to imagine that as Robert Whelan sat there reading Jones's 1893 sermon 50 years later, that he might have wondered, what happened to us? Yeah, of course, the church grew. We're definitely more polished now. You know, we've, we've kind of got it together. The organization is pretty, pretty efficient. We have more of everything. We say all the right words. But do we have that same evidence of the Holy Spirit in our midst? If we would have kept on with this 1888 message, if, if we would have been accustomed to seeing people's lives transformed as they were in the first few years after that, wouldn't the whole world be converted and Jesus would have come by now? You can understand 
how Wieland would come to that conclusion, would, would think along those lines. After all, when, when Wieland was in Africa, it, it seemed like knowledge of this 1888 message was the, was the cure for this Balokole movement. Now, Wieland ran into other problems as well. Some of the textbooks published since 1888, the ones that were, were looking back and interpreting that event and explaining it, sounded like 1888 was a great victory for the church. But as Wieland knew, Ellen White made some statements back then that sounded like church leaders were rejecting the 1888 message of righteousness of my faith. One of Wieland's key Ellen White texts was from a letter he found that dated to 1892 when she wrote, quote, the sin committed in what took place at Minneapolis remains on the record books of heaven registered against the names of those who resisted light, and it will remain upon the record until full confession is made, end quote. So that's 1892. That's four years after, after the 1888 meetings. And Ellen White saying, hey, there's still, there's still church leaders who committed sin back then. And those, those sins have, are still there. They haven't repented of them. Minneapolis wasn't a victory, as some of these textbooks were teaching. It wasn't, hey, yeah, this was a great experience. You know, yes, some people resisted this message, but then we got it. Then we got it, right? That's what the textbook sounded like that Wieland was reading. They're still out there. You can still get them online and read it for yourself. Wieland's wondering, I don't think this was a victory for us. I, I think Ellen White's statement that, that there are still sins on the book, so to speak, that need to be repented of is, is still valid. Now, Wieland wasn't the first to raise this point, by the way. In my research, I found an article that uh, in, in 1937, written by the president of the North Pacific Union with the headline, was the righteousness message rejected at the 1888 conference? Okay, so this appears to have been a question at least a few Adventists had been asking. Okay, if the Union president had to address it in the 30s, no doubt some enough people were, were asking this question. You know, did we really accept righteousness by faith there in 1888? Or did we reject it? Do we need to repent of having rejected it then? Okay, so some people were asking that question. It's really impossible to say how many or how widespread it is. It doesn't seem like it was super widespread or else, you know, the General Conference might have met to deal with it or, um, you know, books would have come out answering the question or something like that. One imagines, one imagines. So, but at least a few people were asking that question and it hit the radar of a union president. Wieland just took this question. He didn't invent it. He didn't invent this idea, he just, but he took it and he ran with it, and he popularized it. Wieland also used a quote from then-General Conference President O.A. Olson back in 1893 when he lamented that, that, that the president did, lamented that some felt annoyed that 1888 was being brought up again at this General Conference session, right? People were like, let the wound heal. That was a tough experience for everybody. Just let it go. Olson insisted the church needed to learn the lesson that God had been trying to teach his church in 1888, warning of the consequence of failure. Olson said, quote, If we fail at one time, the Lord will take us over the ground again. And if we fail a second time, he will take us over the ground again. And if we fail a third time, the Lord will take us over the same ground again. End quote. In other words, the cost of ignoring the message of 1888 was that God would drag his church back through it all over again. 
And if God was happy to drag the church through 1888 again, Wheatland was happy to grab an ankle and help pull. The church, as you can imagine, church leadership, was not happy to be dragged through 1888 all over again. <laughs> At the end of his first semester in seminary, Wheeland was invited to Denton E. Reebok's office to talk about some minor issue with his registration. Wheeland couldn't help but let his president know the, that the church needed to repent and that the seminary was teaching error. Okay, I know that I know that the seminary didn't have computers at this time, but I'm just picturing uh, Denton typing away, working on Wheeland's registration, and, and Wheeland's just, hey, by the way, the, the entire church needs to repent because we are not teaching the truth about righteousness by faith. You know, we're getting it exactly wrong. Our textbooks are wrong about this, da-da-da-da-da. And I can just imagine the president looking away from the screen for a second, like, where did this come from? And what are you getting at, young man? In Whelan's words, quote, I communicated to him quite frankly my concern that the so-called righteousness by faith that was being taught there in the seminary was not what the Lord had sent to Seventh-day Adventists in the 1888 message, end quote. Yeah, Reebok wasn't impressed by this young zealot. And however it happened, as a result, Wheeland was out of the seminary. Wheeland wanted to stay. He wanted to stay at the seminary, and he claimed that he pleaded with Reebok to, that he wouldn't cause, you know, I'm not going to cause any more trouble, that the only person Wheeland had ever shared these thoughts with, these seditious thoughts apparently, was with Donald Short. And, but Reebok wouldn't have it. Wheeland says that Reebok marched him over to his student housing apartment and counted the dishes, which is something that Reebok apparently did with every student who was leaving to make sure they hadn't broken anything or taken anything, right? Because the dishes stay, apparently. And then Reebok signed him out of his apartment then and there. Now, that is Wheeland's side of it. It may be the truth. I don't know. I don't know Reebok's side of it. It'd be a fun thing to look into sometime. And maybe when we do a 2.0 edition of this episode someday, uh, we can get Reebok side of it. Whatever happened, Wheeland was now living in a hotel or somewhere. He, he couldn't remember later on. And completely fixated on 1888, right? Like he's more convinced now than ever that this thing is the truth. And, and we need to focus on this 1888 thing. So the next day he went to the White Estate to do research. D.E. Robinson was in charge and wasn't in the business of just letting people into those 1888 files. And this is this is a habitual attitude of the White Estate. It's not just Robinson. Uh, you know, they're, they're cautious about who comes in to do research. This has opened up significantly with the, with the Ellen White writings on, on CD and the app now on your, on your smart devices. Um, and, of course, a lot of the unpublished stuff have been put online now as well. So things are opening up a bit. But, you know, there are certain files I'm just not going to let anyone go in and see and do with whatever they want. And so this was true back then as well. And so Robinson asked who this young man was, and Whelan told him he was the president of the Uganda mission on furlough and that he knew Robinson's son who was over there in Kenya. Well, okay, the older Robinson said. Robinson let him in and let him make some copies so long as Whelan promised not to publish anything. He spent the first day copying some documents, Whelan did. Now, when he returned the second day, he was given a different file, which Wheeland recognized basically as a, as a manuscript form of testimonies and ministers. And he was told he couldn't have the file he was stopped copying yesterday. So the question is, did Reebok find out and warn Robinson, hey, don't let this young man in there? We don't know. 
but that was all Wieland was going to get. Wieland would later write, quote, I just couldn't understand it. Here's what Ellen White called a most precious message, and the White estate was maintaining secrecy about it, covering up what Ellen White had to say about it. And it was obvious that what Ellen White said was in complete contradiction of what Spaulding and L.H. Christen and our textbooks had been saying about it, end quote. Spaulding and Christian had written the textbooks used in Wheelan's class on 1888. They, according to Wheelan, were peddling this official narrative that 1888 was a great success, right? Thank, thank you to God and to Ellen White and Jones and Wagner for reminding us of the importance of righteousness by faith. Well, to Wheelan, this seems like a deception. It seems like a cover-up, right? They're maintaining secrecy about it. Yeah, this is not the first one to think that. As I mentioned, he had found some Ellen White statements that suggested that the 1888 message hadn't been widely accepted by church leaders, and now both his school and the Ellen White estate had, had basically kicked him out for daring to question the official narrative. Now, Robert J. Wheeland had always been a questioner. His Presbyterian Sunday school teacher, when he was growing up, made the class memorize the Ten Commandments when he was about 12, Realizing that the fourth commandment talks about the Sabbath on the seventh day, Wheeland asked his teacher why they don't go to church on Saturday. The Sunday school teacher apparently didn't really know, and, you know, that was it. The Wheelands had never heard of Seventh-day Adventists at that time, but they managed to find them and join the church the very next year. As a teenager, Wheeland devoured Ellen White's Desire of Ages, the Great Controversy, even her published testimonies. He was the only Adventist in his high school and had constant problems there trying to keep the Sabbath. He had to tell his principal that he couldn't take his final exam because it was on Saturday, and so the state of Florida had to reschedule it for him. Then he scored first place in the state for English and literature, apparently. Now, you see at once both Whelan's nobility and courage, but also his stubbornness and willingness to question those in authority in his childhood. I mean, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around a kid at age 12 picking up on the Ten Commandments and asking his Sunday school teacher why they don't go to church on, on, on Saturday. I mean, a willingness to challenge your teacher at 12 years old? Yeah, these are the qualities, the nobility and courage, the, the, the just incessant questioning, why, 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 why do we do it this way, you know? And if you give him the, the wrong answers, apparently the Sunday school teacher did, then we're out of here. You know, did a 12-year-old boy really help lead his family from one church to another? Perhaps there were some other things going on. I don't know. But these are the qualities that would draw thousands of people to him, but also repel thousands of people from him later on in life. He struggled in his early Adventism with the law. Galatians seemed to damn the Adventist position. He just couldn't find any Adventists who persuaded him. He writes, quote, I used to feel embarrassed. I used to even feel that the prophet Paul let us down, end quote. I, I find that hilarious. Come on, Paul. Be a better Adventist, buddy. Someday you're going to get the truth. <laughs> Wheeland read Milton Wilcox's book, Studies in Romans, and called it dry as powder, <laughs> When Adventist preachers got on Romans or on Galatians, he, he said that they, quote, just bored me and I wasn't easily bored, end quote. It wasn't until Wheeland got to college at Washington Missionary College that things changed. This was 1938-1939, and this is how he described it. While I was a student there at Washington Missionary College, whether it was my junior or my senior year, I can't remember for certain. But our instructor had 
told us that Elder John Ford did not understand the two covenants. Elder John Ford was the Mark Finley of that day, or the George Vandeman, if you please, of that day. He was the outstanding Adventist evangelist, and we were shocked when he said that he didn't understand the two covenants. Well, who does? And then he looked very thoughtful and said, well, to tell the truth, he didn't know who did. And that shocked us all the more. And we asked him, what could we learn about the two covenants? He said, well, you should read the book, The Glad Tidings, by Wagner. I went to the library, and of course the book was not there. And uh, so we told him that he's brought his own copy unreserved for us. And I read chapters 3 and 4, and my heart was strangely warmed. His heart was strangely warmed by reading Wagner's Glad Tidings? What's interesting to me, and I, I hope I'm not reading too much into this, is that we once again have the slightest insinuation of failure in church leadership. His professor, who was Lindsay A. Simmons, by the way, knew that this popular evangelist did not understand the covenants, and he didn't know who did. Yet why? Why doesn't this professor know an Adventist who understands the covenants? Well, you can say at least he can point his students towards a book that may have the answer, towards Wagner's Glad Tidings. Okay, except the college doesn't have a copy available for the students. Perhaps it was checked out. Or perhaps they had banished all things Jones and Wagner since the two had left the church. I don't know, but you get a hint here that one way or the other, the church had failed Wieland. This was about more than a school library not having a particular book. It was about this particular book at this particular time, because when Professor Simmons made it his own copy available to his students, Wieland devoured it. And he writes, quote, I can never forget the joy that filled my heart as I read that book. For the first time, I saw the gospel as really good news. For the first time, I saw the beauty of Christ's righteousness and the warmth and the love in the writing of that book. Its vitality, its life, even touches of humor here and there made it intensely interesting to me. I actually fell in love with the gospel for the first time in my life, and yet at that time I did not know who Wagner was. I had no inkling of the 1888 controversy, never heard of 1888, end quote. Wieland, as he, you can probably guess by now, began copying glad tidings in his spare time, feeling that this must be a rare book, and he would probably never find it again. He took his copy to Africa, read it often, although he dared not preach from it, he said, because it, it just felt so very not Adventist, not the way we usually explain things. Of course, Wheeland and Short were having a five-week layover in England while waiting for a boat to take them back to America, and that's when Wheeland met a 90-year-old woman named Rosa Spicer, who had known Wagner when he was in England way back when. And so Wheatland asked her if she had glad tidings, because all he had was his, his manuscript copy that he had copied by hand. Maybe he didn't have all of it, I don't know. He was, he was desperate. She, she said she thought she had the copy, but she couldn't quite find it. So Wheatland, <laughs> he asks her, quote, well, lady, if you think you had it, why don't you look again, end quote, which, oh, okay, sounds like a rude thing to say to a 90-year-old woman, okay? But she did finally find the book, and he read it. And when he finished, he gave it back because, hey, thanks for letting me borrow it. And she took it, and he said he was really disappointed by that. <laughs> He's really obsessed with this book. But a couple of days later, 
she returned it to him. She found him, returned it to him, and said, you know, you need it more than I do. And, you know, I don't know where Whelan's things are today, but whoever has his books has a very old copy of Glad Tidings, okay? Now, after Wheeland left the seminary and was barred from research at the White Estate, he returned to Florida and began writing anyone who might have any material or memory of 1888, asking for copies and copies and copies of statements and letters and so on, until he had assembled an impressive library on the subject. He later wrote, quote, Of course I was fired with zeal because I thought something's being covered up. This was the Adventist Watergate. Of course, there was no Watergate then in the U.S. government, but I suppose the excitement of those days about the fear of World War III, the Korean War accelerating in the World War III, it fired me. I thought time was short, and this was important that the truth be known. So I wrote to Elder J.S. Washburn, end quote. Oh, of course, Washburn comes up in this story, and so does Holmes also, by the way. In the interview Michael Campbell did with Wheeland before he died, I mean, before Wheeland died, not Michael Campbell. Michael Campbell is still with us and awesome. Anyways, Washburn comes up a lot in that interview. Washburn helped teach a class when Wheeland was at Washington Missionary College and talked about the daily controversy. Came in to just talk about that. He had obviously a long history with that controversy and was happy to tell the students what he knew. In the course of talking about the Daily, Washburn was among the first, if not the first, to introduce Wheeland to Jones and Wagner. And, of course, the idea uh, that, that church leaders are buying into this new view of the Daily, which, again, just shows that, contrary to their propaganda, the leaders of the church did not accept the 1888 message, right? Because if they accepted the 1888 message, if they were all right with God, then they never would have fallen for this false view of the Daily, I know some of you are like, oh my goodness, are we talking about the daily again? Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> the daily is just all throughout the 20th century. It is amazing how influential some of these ideas are that most Adventists have never heard of or have long since forgotten about. And it's not just the daily. Whenever the brethren in Washington seemed to have made a mistake, Wheeland attributed their failure to 1888 as in some way, shape, or form, a contributing factor to that failure. A turning point for Wheeland came in the spring of 1950, when Wheeland noticed a short book review in The Ministry, today Ministry Magazine, recommending the book The Way to Power and Poise. Wheeland about lost it. This book was written by E. Stanley Jones, a famous Methodist missionary to India a generation before, the, the write-up in ministry was by the young evangelist George Vandeman, who would in a few years go on to found It Is Written. And Vandeman assured his readers that this book by Stanley Jones would help them understand righteousness by faith. Hmm, yeah, that got Wheeland's attention. Wheeland read the book by Jones and quickly realized that this Jones's understanding of righteousness by faith was unlike the other Joneses, A.T. Jones's understanding of righteousness by faith. Stanley Jones preached a forensic justification, right? Believe and you are saved, like the Balakole movement in Africa. Alonzo T. Jones preached a total life justification in 1888. Two different ways of preaching righteousness by faith. And it also got William Spicy Spicer's attention. Yeah, our old boy's still around. Spicer wrote a rather vague warning in the review against mysticism a couple of months later. Wheeland wrote Spicer, hey, were you talking about Stanley Jones in that article, Spicer? Because, you know, I think, I think you and I are on the same page here. Spicer replied, yep, I saw Vandeman's recommendation in ministry too. 
Wheatland apparently urged Spicer to protest. You know, like, hey, you've got some clout around here. You're a former general conference president. Say something. Be more specific. Don't write this vague article. Let people know. They'll listen to you. But it was Wheeland who ended up protesting the most. Wheeland wrote to Vanderman, who held his ground in a series of letters. Wheeland wrote to others at, at the ministry and, and just got nowhere. But still, Spicer's stand heartened Wheeland. He would later reflect, quote, Here I was, all alone, standing for what I believed was right against the seminary and the ministry magazine and general conference personnel in the positions that they took. And suddenly an ex-general conference president takes his stand by my side emphatically and unequivocally. This, of course, encouraged me. Maybe after all, I wasn't completely crazy. End quote. Wheeland and Donald Short, who was still at the seminary, by the way, attended their first general conference session which was, you know, typically, at this point in, in uh, Adventist history, typically held in San Francisco. A lot of them were held in San Francisco. We've talked about that. They arrived as delegates to their first general conference session, and during the meetings for ministers that preceded the session, there was a lot of talk about 1888. People were invited to come to the microphone and speak openly. Wheeland felt he couldn't say what he wanted to say in the one minute that they were allotting the speakers. So he just listened. Well, he had so much to say <laughs> to anyone who would listen that he just he couldn't take it anymore. Once the session was over, he had to run back to his room at the hotel, pull out his typewriter, and just unburden himself in a letter to the General Conference. In this letter, Whelan poured all of his pent-up frustration, which had been building over the past 10 months. He'd been kicked out of the seminary, banned from studying on the White's writings at the White Estate, at least the 1888 ones, his letters to people at ministry had all been ignored. He, you know, all he wanted was for church leaders to understand the message of 1888, the stuff Wagner had written in Glad Tidings, and the stuff that A.T. Jones had preached in 1893, and just to understand how this message was connected to the latter reign, which Ellen White talked about, and how church leaders then and now were rejecting this message, and they were adopting a definition of righteousness by faith that the evangelicals and the Methodists and other Christians were pushing, right? Like, we have our own understanding of this, and, and we're ignoring it. We're adopting the meaning of it that other Christians are, are, are proclaiming, and it's an emaciated meeting. It's not the same. And so the church needs to repent and begin preaching this truth so God can pour out his Spirit on his sleeping people. That's the only way Jesus will return. When we finish our work, he can finish his work. And as it stands, we're going astray and there's war going on out there, and, and it could be World War III. This could be the end of time. We, we have to get this done. Were the ministerial meetings talking about Christ-centered preaching? Mm. Whelan said in the letter it was more like anti-Christ-centered preaching. He lashed out against Stanley Jones and Billy Graham, and for, you know, for, for the General Conference leaders, ally, for those two preachers, I should say, allying themselves with spiritualistic forces. Wheeland complained how the speakers in the ministerial meetings kept saying that what is most important is preaching Christ and that our other Avenus distinctive beliefs are secondary. But Avenus aren't putting Christ first. They're putting this weak sauce evangelical Jesus first. This Jesus that merely proclaims us saved and doesn't require anything of us. Like, don't you guys understand? World War III could happen at any moment with Korea or the Soviets. And this may be our, own, oh, our only chance to repent and get ourselves right with God as a church. This may be the end. With his letter finished, Wieland looked around for someone to read it before he sent it. 
Just, you know, just please look it over. Am I crazy? Am I way out of line here? Well, he thought of Roy Allen Anderson, who was in the process of, of taking over the Ministerial Association at the General Conference. But Whelan thought and, and that Anderson would just brush him off. Then he looked for Spicer, his ally, right? The guy who was standing next to him couldn't find Spicer. Finally, he found his friend Donald Short, who not only read it, but approved of it and offered to sign it. So Wheeland retyped the letter, changing all the I's to we's, to include both of them, and then sent it. A few days later, they saw a note on the bulletin board. <laughs> Robert J. Wheeland and Donald K. Short, please go to this room. They found a secretary of the general conference who replied that they didn't have time to carefully consider their letter while a session, a general conference session was going on. But make no mistake about it, if you guys insist on going down this path, the brethren are going to cancel your furlough, cancel your assignments to Africa, and essentially fire you. Wheeland and Short were invited to Washington in September to talk about this some more. Now, Wheeland and Short weren't about to wait until September. They addressed another letter to the General Conference Committee a week later. This was Wheeland's seminary experience all over again. He had first complained to Reebok, and then when he realized Reebok was turned against him, he tried to conciliate and, and you know, telling Reebok, I promised to behave. I didn't tell anybody else about this. I'll just let me finish my school. Well, this second letter, while it doesn't back down from any of his positions, it's, it's more positive in tone. Wheeland, in short, affirmed that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is God's true church and that it will triumph, right? They're a little bit more optimistic. Instead of the whole church has failed, we need to repent, it's like, you yeah, know, there are plenty of good things, plenty of things that God has blessed in this church. Don't lose sight of that. And that's what's in the second letter. On the final Sabbath of the session, McElhaney was replaced, um, had been replaced by Branson as General Conference president. And so, he preached a sermon, Branson did, on how the latter rain was available for all who have accepted Jesus. And, and Wheeland was horrified by this. This is actually one of the, the points that Wheeland says that he and Washburn had differed. Wheeland was not hot on Branson, whereas Washburn thought Branson would really help bring revival in the church. Uh, Branson invited everybody to stand at the end, right? If you've accepted Jesus, you're ready for the latter rain, stand up. Wheeland remained seated, and he, he later said, so did Edward Heppenstall, the theology professor at La Sierra. But, you know, there everyone else was standing like they were on the plain of Dura surrounding Nebuchadnezzar's statue. From there, church leaders had their message. They would fan out across the country, across the world at camp meetings around that summer, preaching this, you know, latter rain, guys, if you accept Jesus, you can experience the latter rain sidelined, you know, with nothing really to do, still on furlough, his future in doubt, Whelan stewed, quote, for how many decades were we to go on and on like this, never making wrongs right, never really humbling our hearts to accept the message that the Lord gave us as the beginning of the latter rain, end quote. Whelan and Short and their families, they, they drove the long way from San Francisco back to Florida. They had nothing to do except wait two months to find out whether they were going to be fired or not. So Wheeland did what he always does. He pulled out a typewriter and wrote, quote, Donald Short and I decided our only hope was to write out our convictions in a manuscript so clearly, so plainly, and so well documented that no honest person could possibly misunderstand what we were saying, end quote. So Wheeland and Short wrote like they were running out of time. They edited each other's work. They did more and more research. They typed and they typed and they typed and they ended up with a manuscript they called 1888 Reexamined 
some 204 pages with 600 quotes from Ellen White, Jones, Wagner, and so on. And when September came around, they brought 50 copies of this 200-page manuscript with them to the General Conference. As you can imagine, this meeting did not go well. Did Wheeland and Short fancy themselves the ghosts of Jones and Wagner, another pair of rebellious young pups preaching against the church establishment? I don't know if that's how they saw themselves. But however they saw themselves, their, their presence was indeed like the ghosts of 1888 looking to haunt the church anew because of some unconfessed past sin. And only confession would exorcise these ghosts. Wheeland and Short were about to learn that while the church may speak fondly of its past, it often has no desire to relive it. And there was no Ellen White who could help these rebellious young pups. Wheeland and Short were on their own. But what does all this have to do with the 1952 Bible Conference, which we talked about a little bit earlier? I refer you to the two published volumes of the presentations that were made at the Bible Conference. In the first volume, as soon as you turn to the introduction, you encounter this phrase, righteousness by faith. The phrase appears one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times on the first page of the introduction. Now, in the introduction to the second volume, the author tells us that even though these presentations were on all sorts of different topics, quote, there nevertheless runs through them a thread of truth which binds them together with a remarkable degree of unity and purpose. That thread is righteousness by faith, which is the third angel's message in verity, and this doctrine is to become the message of the loud cry, which results in the outpouring of the latter rain. End quote. If those two introductions to, the, to, the, to those two volumes of the 1952 Bible Conference, if, if they weren't a response to Wheeland and Short, I don't know what is. Oh, and the author of those two introductions? Denton E. Reebok, the man who kicked Wheeland out of the seminary. You'd better buckle in. We're just getting started. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. 
that's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.